0: I'm
1: trying to make it real compared to what Heart, from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. I want to start off by just saying that uh, tonight was an incredible night for democracy. It was an, I want us to believe in our power. Believe in our power. And we will see this thing through. I love it. Today
2: on the Janice Adams Show, what just happened? Campaign 2018, here's our wrap-up. What happened, what didn't. How we made history for worse and for better. Our guests this week bring us up to date on the goings-on in Ohio, New York City by way of India, and the Hudson River Valley. We're back here on the Janice Adams Show. This week, what just happened? Campaign 2018. Our guests, author, activist, attorney, Aditi Janeja, the op-ed projects, Catherine Baxter, and upstate New York activist, Sandy Oxford. But first... In one of the nation's most contested, contentious, and racist races, incumbent Representative John Faso, Republican, was defeated by his constituents, the citizens of New York's 19th Congressional District. Democrat Antonio Delgado, Harvard graduate, Rhodes Scholar, attorney, and rap artist, an African American husband and father of twin boys raised in Schenectady, is the new
1: congressman. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. From the bottom of my heart. Heart from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. I want to start off by just saying that uh, tonight was an incredible night for democracy. It was an incredible night for New York 19. Over 30,000 folks showed up. Amazing turnout, amazing level of engagement, and that was everything to do not just with our campaign, uh, but with uh, my fellow candidates uh, and Democrats in this race. Uh, yes. As we emerge out of this fight uh, in this campaign, and it was a tough one, remember that there's a lot more that unites us then divides us. Yeah. I'm talking about the candidates. Um, they, over the course of the last year and a half, um, you know, still sharpened steel. And um, what they were able to give me, and I think give them in return, uh, has created a groundswell of support, uh, grounded in grassroots organizations um, that are determined to come together now and restore some opportunity and some hope and some fairness and some justice uh, to the Hudson Valley, to the Cascades, to all of New York 19. I want to thank my mother and my father who instilled in me the values that I think compel me to serve now. <laughs> I want to thank my entire family, but. I want to thank Lacey. Let me tell you something. <laughs> would not be here anywhere near here, without my wings
0: woo, woo.
1: Um, This is a partnership, and what we've endured through this process together only we'll know. Uh, But you know how I feel. Uh, And I thank you for being everything to me, Uh, being the partner that I couldn't even dream of. Thank you. You are the strongest human being I know, the strongest. Now, if I may, I want to speak a little bit about where we are and what lies ahead. Woo! Yes.
0: Because
1: <laughs> a lot lies ahead. Obviously, we care deeply about the fate of New York 19 and the fate of this country. We've seen quite a bit happen of late that is profoundly disturbing, whether it's our own Supreme Court today upholding the Muslim ban, or whether it's the fact that we had to endure an administrative or executive branch uh, that thinks it's OK to separate children from their parents, uh, or we have an assault on our health care that continues day in and day out. There's a cruelty in our current political system that can no longer be tolerated, that is no longer acceptable, that is ugly, and that festers on ignorance and exploits anxiety that actually uh, is not even there, based mm. on the illusion of scarcity in this country. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. The yeah. There's much to have in this country. There's much prosperity, there's much wealth, there's much compassion, there's much love. This is who we are. That's right. Freedom, yeah. equality, yeah. opportunity, fairness, this is who America and what America is about. We are aspirational at our core. That's who we are. That's who we are. And I can't think of a better time to embrace who we are. To be who we are. And how does that translate? in policy. How does it translate for folks on the ground who are hurting? It translates in things like universal affordable health care. It translates in funding our public schools. It translates in infrastructure that actually provides for roads and rails and broadband access and cell service to folks. It translates into moving from fossil fuel to renewable energy. It translates to a future, a vision for a way forward and not holding on to the present for the sake of power Mm
0: -hmm.
1: at the people's expense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, we have a congressman right now in John Faso, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: who, by his record, has demonstrated a willingness to defy the will of the people. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: That's a fact. And it is imperative that we, as the people, react accordingly Mm -hmm. and engage and work but do so with the conviction of your principles. Mm -hmm. Do so with the conviction of love and heart and compassion and empathy and a fire for truth, for truth. Mm -hmm. Now is not the time to be angry. Now is not the time to be personal, to be nativist, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: tribal. Mm -hmm. Now is the time to transcend all of that and bring back hope and prosperity and opportunity yes. for everybody right here at home. Yes. I want us, I want us to believe in our power. Yes. Believe in our power. Yes. Okay? Yes. And we will see this thing through. I love you.
2: When we come back. We'll hear from an activist and constituent of newly elected Congressman Delgado, Sandra Sandy Oxford. We're back here on The Janice Adams Show. Today, Campaign 2018. What? Just happened. Our guests attorney, author, and activist Aditi Janeja, the op ed project's Catherine Baxter, and one of newly elected Congressman Antonio Delgado's constituents in upstate New York, Sullivan County, Sandy Oxford.
3: I'm outgoing president of the local branch, the Sullivan County branch of the NAACP, which is the oldest civil rights organization. We are nonpartisan, so we do not engage in um, supporting a particular candidate. A lot of the work of the local branch was doing engagement and enrollment and getting voters registered. That was predominantly what we did and doing, uh, we annually offer forums just before the uh, vote. However, since 2004, I've served as the co-chair of the Working Family Party here in Sullivan County, very specifically with issue-oriented campaigns and candidates. Campaign 2018, what did it represent for you? It was... Wonderful. I was thrilled to see how many of my neighbors and my friends became engaged, involved, and took leadership positions here in my rural community in the Catskills emerged a small cadre of leaders that women that mostly women and some men, but mostly women who I have known and trusted Who were at the helm and they were at the head of doing canvassing, doing phone banking, organizing other newer voters, organizing first time uh, election and campaign volunteers. So in that regard, it was it was beautiful. It was really, really a groundswell. Was this a change from previous elections? Yes, it was. We're looking at the numbers. I have the numbers for 2014 versus the numbers for 2018. And 27% more people came out to vote Tuesday than they had in 2014. That is that is massive. We were slightly in the uh, 50% realm as far as voter engagement in our rural county. The fact that we were below 30% prior to this is really dismal, and it is an indicator, and it showed me how we wound up here, the horrific experience that many of us went through in 2016. And, and I feel like 2016 was a bolt of lightning that shot through people, and that was what woke many of my neighbors and my good buddies up to just take leadership roles. What was some of the energy that you
2: felt, meaning things that people were saying to you, things that you actually felt about why you needed to make this change in behavior between previous elections and now?
3: One of the first things that jumps out at me was in this very heavily contested congressional district that I live in, the 19th Congressional District of New York. One of the issues that was galvanized across 11 counties was the issue of healthcare and the issue of how important healthcare is, that this is a right. We were talking about human rights, and in many ways it was my neighbors and it was these constituents that guided or that forced, in some cases, candidates to make this a priority. We saw in our democratic primary that it was not the candidates, but it was really the electorate that created that groundswell, created the momentum for health care to be the issue that was the top of the ticket issue that was being discussed across the entire congressional district here.
2: In the closing weeks of the election, John Faso, as did many Republicans, tried to Say no, they really are for health care, that they always were behind covering people with pre
3: existing conditions. Did the people around you believe that? The people around me became extremely astute as they watched a lot of what had been fought for to get some form of coverage that was affordable, that our neighbors had access to be stripped away. We're fortunate to live in a state like New York that shored up a lot of those protections and that enhanced uh, what the federal government was doing on a federal level. So perhaps it wasn't felt as, um, we didn't feel the pinch as bad as other neighbors in other states with no safety net, with no uh, other resources. I think that people were very well-educated on health coverage. I think they were very well-educated on health care. And I'm very proud to see that we are still pushing for a single-payer system. We've mentioned John Fasso as the outgoing Republican representative The
2: incoming representative is the Democrat, Antonio Delgado. And one of the things that really dominated this campaign was a smearing of this African-American candidate by the FASO campaign and supporters of FASO, outside organizations who did ads on his behalf. One of those smears was that he was outsider. We know it to be a code word, but it was interesting because I looked up, he's actually from Schenectady. They charged him as having New York City values and New York City politics. Um, But he is from Schenectady. So he grew up in upstate New York. He was very much part of this culture but he was portrayed as an outsider. As well, one of the things that was done was this portrayal of him as a rapper. A rapper as an artist is not a good thing, but being a rapper, instead of his being a Harvard graduate, a Rhodes Scholar, and an attorney. What did that tell the people you know about the temper of the times, where the Republican Party was concerned, where John Fassel was concerned. What did that make the people you know feel like?
3: You know, most people understood that code, a lot of those code words. Um, We knew that this was a racist dog whistle that was sent out. And, yeah, you know, Schenectady is a couple of zip codes away from our congressional district. His wife was raised in the congressional district. Her family is still there. You know, I was, I don't think I was as angry. I, I and, and maybe because I've become a little bit desensitized under the administration that we are currently in, with the trauma that many of us have endured with Muslim bans, with children being separated from their parents and put in cages at, on the border, and understanding the new universe that we've all been exposed to. Many of us understood this as part of that same unleashing of hatefulness and of deceit that was coming from the highest places in the halls of power in this country so it it was very much lockstep with trump's racist agenda i i wasn't surprised that they would that they would go there one thing that is always surprising if i could just share someone was saying sometimes it's it's not what people say it's you know the silence of the people who don't speak up and who don't say anything in those moments those are some of the more trying times and and how to overcome that. Well, how do you see overcoming that? I think we have extraordinary. If you you see this incoming, I call it the feminist tide of the blue wave. You see all these amazing women that are, that are going to make their way into the halls of power. This is something that we've never seen. It's a record number of women who are going to be sitting in Congress, and we have everything to celebrate about that. That is the next wave. That is the next generation. When we engage young people, when we start building, New leaders. I'm hoping that we understand the value of our AAA team, our farm team, the people who we are putting on our political committees, the people who we are electing to municipal offices at the town level. This is where we have our strengths as well. And this is where I believe the new leadership will most certainly emerge from. And if we don't lose sight of that, um, then we don't become hopeless. We remain hopeful. You mentioned how many of your neighbors had been
2: energized moving towards leadership positions, and you spoke in terms of this feminist tide of the blue wave. We know that tide was propelled by the election of Trump in 2016. I would ask, what to many of those women did the Kavanaugh hearings
3: represent? I'm sure that was just another chapter in this dystopian reality that we've all inherited since the 2016 election. And everybody was was in shock to see that. Many of us today are sending out our good energy and our positive vibes to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who injured herself and broke a rib, Uh, We're looking at the courts. We do not want to see everything controlled by this regressive mindset. It's one thing to have this regressive leadership in the White House. It's another thing to have the Senate controlled by that same regressive leadership. Um, But to have the courts there is, is it's scary. It's scary because you don't want them to have control of all of these venues.
2: And indeed, the history of the country is such that we often think in terms of the country on a steady trajectory forward and nothing could be further from the truth. So the dangers have, are always there of people being pushed back as, as people move forward coming out of the Civil War and Reconstruction, then it was pushed back into the era of segregation and then we move forward forward in the civil rights era, but we feel this intense pushback now to what you're calling this regressive mindset. Knowing that, where do you think we need to go from here?
3: Well, I hope we continue. I hope we continue to work together. I hope we continue to remember in these moments of crisis, how we've reached for the best in each other and have come through the other end of this process better, better as a result of of what we've had to fight, struggle, and protect. We're talking in our community, we're talking about what the next steps are. When you live in a rural community, it's a bit different than living in an urban environment and organizing in an urban environment. There is a great reliance on social media. There's a great reliance on technology because we can't travel from one end of the county to the other. We don't have public transportation. We don't have the means and the vehicles that we need sometimes for a face-to-face meetings. So we have to create alternatives to that. And we have to be sure that we localize things as well and that we do have these times for that one-on-one, that engagement. I will not be able to overstress to you I believe the most powerful tool that was used in my community was the one-on-one conversation. There's very little is more powerful than that, than sitting down with somebody and having this exchange. That is a tool that should not be minimized, that we cannot marginalize, because it is in those conversations that we can help people understand that they can take their rightful place in their community and be part of the solutions or be part of the leadership? All over the country, we are getting reports of
2: the negative side of leadership, what is happening because of President Trump's rhetoric, what is happening to people all around the country in terms of the hatred, the violence, the the intimidation in our area, have we had any major incidents of that?
3: We are not exempt from those situations to tell you that we've had a massive roundup of our neighbors who are not fully documented. No, however, these subtleties are very insidious. And they exist in all sectors of of our life, whether we are looking at access to health care, whether we are looking at um, equity in education, whether we are looking at fairness as it relates to uh, economic opportunities. So I could, that's, you know, I, I don't want to say that it doesn't happen here because it does. And Especially in a rural area, it gets magnified because often we don't have some of the resources that you would find in an urban area to to fight those things off. So people feel very isolated and people feel like they're alone. You as
2: outgoing president of the local NEACP, where do you tell people to go when they encounter some of these difficulties?
3: It depends on what is happening, what is the issue. I serve on the board of the Worker Justice Center of New York State, which is an organization that is a legal service committed to anybody who has experienced any type of discrimination on the job or any type of um, breach in uh, labor law. There's also our local New York Civil Liberties Union, and they have an office in this region. The NYCLU has been at the head and at the helm of a variety of different lawsuits protecting individuals who, if they are discriminated, trying to seek some type of government assistance, if they are discriminated in the workplace as well, they do workplace litigation. And then we have our local Human Rights Commission here that is part of the State Human Rights Commission. We have some resources here. What I would like to see more of is more of our local neighbors, again, the local citizenry, and some of the faith community. The faith community has always had a strong presence in standing up for justice, I have to say that. Here in Sullivan County, when things go bad and when things have gone wrong, it has often been a variety of people from the faith community who have been willing to stand in the gap where, where there is nobody and accompany people. It's, it's a bit of a patchwork quilt here. There are some resources we could use more and we always can use more allies. If I could just shift a little bit and keeping the conversation local, I want to share a huge victory in New York state, which is that for the first time in 80 years, the Democrats will be hopefully taking a long and lovely control of our state Senate. In New York state, much of the progressive legislation has been stymied in the state senate. We have had an assembly that has been very supportive of additional protections in health care, protecting women's rights, protecting immigrants' rights, um, taking the pay-to-play pay out of out of and uh, in introducing campaign finance. That the, those types of anti-corruption initiatives, and it has been, it has died in the senate. Our district will now be represented by a Democrat, Jen Metzger. She is extraordinary. She is wonderful. It was an amazing pleasure to work for one of the only state Democratic campaigns that refused, and she was not an incumbent, that refused to take any type of corporate outside money. And she ran a grassroots campaign that was supported by organizations, labor organizations, and most especially the grassroots. So Jen Metzger is the senator of the New York State uh, 42nd Senate District, and now we will have... Our other senator, Andrea Stewart-Cousins, who will be the most powerful woman in the New York State Senate. And that was long overdue because if anybody knows about New York State politics, it's not always played clean. It is a contact sport. And we had a group of rogue Democrats and they decided to sell the rest of the Democrats in the state down the river. And they created their own coalition in our state government that uh, bastardized and watered down a lot of very progressive legislation that should have been on the books today and is not. So I know that the first charge of our Democrats is going to be to repair some of those pieces of legislation that did not clearly define things like, for example, when will New York State above Westchester get their fifteen dollars an hour. The fight for fifteen was successful. Wage. Yes. It was named after the governor's father and that was wonderful. But it really only covered the 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 five boroughs in New York, the two counties on on Long Island and Westchester County. Why? Because that's the that is where the concentration of of individuals lied and that and that is where the power was another legis- uh, piece of legislation was raised the age that New York state was one of only two states in the country that incarcerated 16 year olds with adults. So while we did raise the age in ceremony, we did not actually pass the strongest legislation to be sure that these 16 to 18 year olds do not wind up in an adult system. Here is where Democrats like my new Senator are going to come into play because they are not up there to, 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 play footsie with the Republicans. They are there to deliver the progressive agenda, the progressive legislation that we encourage them to campaign on.
2: After our interview, Sandy shared this story.
3: I had a wonderful breakfast this morning, and it was really through the faith community that many of us came together And my county that I live in is headed up by a Republican legislature. And many of our dignitaries and elected officials are Republican. I spent quite a bit of time consoling people because I kind of had a flashback from 2016 and what I felt like. I know that our friends from across the aisle felt um, traumatized by the results of what happened on Tuesday night. And I hope that we could find a little bit of kindness and compassion to let them know that it's going to be okay and remind them that we are all in this together.
2: That was Sandy Oxford, activist and outgoing NAACP chapter president in upstate New York's Sullivan County. When we come back, more of Election 2018 as seen through the eyes of a Californian gone home to Ohio and an Indian American immigrant attorney come of age in New York City. After the break.
0: I saw a better
2: day as I looked across the field. Well, I saw trails of troubles. Rows of battles, piles of victory, we shall walk. We're back here on the Janice Adams Show. Today, campaign 2018, what just happened? For election season 2018, Katherine Baxter, who lives in California, decided to go home to Ohio, where she canvassed for local candidates and helped get out the vote, putting into on-the-ground action the work she does for the op-ed project. Here's Catherine. The mission is the message.
4: How do we increase the voices and range of ideas we hear in the world and think about who is narrating the world?
2: And who right now is narrating the world?
4: One of the things that we think about and, and focus on is how do we enter into the conversation of power? In many ways, and when you look at still what's happening today, in whether it's Congress or the Supreme Court, or who is you know, who is writing op eds, which are you know leveraging the best ideas into the world, um, it's it is still predominantly, mainly white, mainly male, mainly Western, privileged, and. And yet, we are also seeing a shift in people who are choosing to put their ideas into the public dialogue and conversation, even when the risks for women, for people of color, for people from different backgrounds and ethnicities and abilities are greater, that they are choosing to enter into the conversation anyway. Um, And... You can see that in in our work, in the ideas that are in the op-ed pages, but also not just in the op-ed pages, and you can see it in the amount of women that ran and were elected um, this year alone.
2: What did this year's election say to you?
4: I actually went back home to Ohio um, to canvas, knock on doors, make phone calls, uh, to... Kind of do do my part because I felt that the the stakes are are so high, and if if we if we don't act in kind of a range of ways, um, and get try to get other people to do so as well, then um, we are you know we are kind of conceding. Then we can continue to be mad, but until we um, have more people that are doing actually doing the work then um, in in kind of a range of ways, not just electorally, but then we're going to continue to be stuck.
2: Let's talk about Ohio for a moment. This year's election was said to have some serious surprises. But before we get to the surprises, what were some of the issues on the table for Ohio?
4: The biggest issue would be health care and access to health care. Uh, the opioid crisis and access to rehab and, and mental health care and from the opioid crisis, a different angle around criminal justice and how we think about drugs and addiction.
2: The national narrative is that Ohio's outcomes were a surprise. Why were we surprised?
4: My gut about this is that people expected the Democratic wave, a blue wave to come. When that didn't happen, I think the the surprise is around, you know, is there really a repudiation of what's going on in Washington? Yeah, because Ohio's been so traditionally a swing state of swing states.
2: But having been on the ground, was it a surprise to you?
4: The district where I was working in and the, the first district of Ohio is extremely gerrymandered. It's got the inner city of Cincinnati with the suburban area. And so in that sense, I also wasn't as surprised. Um, Ohio has also purged a lot of people off of the voter rolls over the past four years. I was also less surprised because of the structural ways that are intended to keep the status quo there. And so for that reason, I also wasn't as surprised.
2: Women did do, on par, extremely well in this election. It's not where it needs to be, let's face it. Women are 51% Mm -hmm. of the population, and our representation is not 51%, so it's not where it Mm -hmm. should be. But how did things turn out in terms of women in Ohio?
4: The two women candidates that I was working on, they, they both lost, unfortunately. But what I will say is that when I went to the volunteering events and the canvassing and the trainings that it was overwhelmingly women that were out and engaged and active in knocking on doors, on training new volunteers. And I think what's exciting about the the future is the possibility of all of these people who are volunteers who are out knocking on doors and making phone calls for them to to be inspired and engaged to run in the in the next election.
3: For
2: women, for disfranchised people, for the heightened power of those voices, what are the next steps that we really need to look at going into the next election?
4: I think that building a bench of women to run at all levels and starting at younger and younger ages for running and for changing their, their community. This is kind of what we do at the op-ed project as well, though is to tie it back to that is how we understand our own knowledge and our own experience and uh, the value of it. And that our personal experience, what we've lived is as powerful, if not much more powerful than our professional credentials and that to have more women being able to speak to what they've lived authentically, I think, really connects with people.
2: That was Catherine Baxter.
4: Born in India,
2: raised in the United States, and now a citizen, Aditi Janaja is an attorney, author, and activist. What's her take on election 2018?
5: I think what took place this year was Americans standing up for their democracy. I saw uh, today a statistic saying that we had the highest midterm turnout since 1966. It was still not great. It was only about half of eligible voters showed up. But, uh, you know, it's moving in the right direction. And, of course, Democrats won back the House of Representatives, meaning that there is now a check on uh, President Trump and our system should hopefully function better than it has been.
2: Where are you based? I'm based in New York City. Was there a particular election that you were monitoring, a particular candidacy or referendum or anything that you were monitoring?
5: Yeah, I was keeping my eyes on uh, on a couple. I was paying attention to some of the ballot measures that had to do with redistricting and particularly on the creation of independent commissions for how we uh, draw districts and legislative boundaries, as well as kind of pro-democracy measures. So in Michigan, for example, there was such a ballot measure that was passed that created an independent commission for redistricting, but I believe also includes automatic voter registration and other things that just make it easier for people to engage with their democracy.
2: And those, for you, critical initiatives, how did they turn out?
5: Uh, We won on a number of them, and in Michigan, we won.
2: Okay. All right. I know you've said it's about people standing up for democracy, but unfortunately, a lot of people and that I would put in that category, thank goodness a good number did win. But I still think that far too many did not. Indeed, I, I remain personally concerned about uh, issues that to me are serious human rights issues that I feel the vote was too close too close one way or the other. So where do you see us standing? And I, and I mean, particularly as an attorney, and as an activist, how do you frame that?
5: I think progress and change always happens too slowly. And it is totally normal as an empathetic dealing person to see people around you suffering and be deeply frustrated by those who seem not to care. With that said, I think in that situation, you have two choices. You can either double down on the changes you're trying to make and take comfort in the fact that there has been progress and that there continues to be progress, or you can kind of throw your hands up. And I think, you know, even if we're going to lose, I want to lose fighting. So I choose to take comfort and solace where there was good progress and continue to press forward where there wasn't.
2: The top issues this uh, election season, immigration, health care, voting rights, you know, crazy as it is, voting rights being an issue, voter suppression being an issue. You work for an organization called Protect Democracy. How did your organization view those issues?
5: Well, you know, we're a nonpartisan nonprofit, so I'll say that at the outset. But, you know, we view building an inclusive democracy in the United States as vitally important and, uh, you know, elections have consequences. So they are a part of that. Today, actually, we uh, just had a big victory in the state of Georgia where there were uh, some interesting activities happening in the governor's race. We had filed suit on Tuesday against Secretary of State Kemp asking for an emergency order from a court for Secretary of State Kemp to recuse himself from administering the election on the theory that, you know, you shouldn't be able to be the umpire in a World Series if you're a player, right? Like, so if you're a candidate, you should not be Uh, able to uh, tilt the playing field towards you in the way that Secretary of State Kemp did. And this morning, we learned that Secretary of State Kemp resigned from his post as Secretary of State. And so, you know, we were involved and deeply aware and concerned about all of these issues. And one of our big priorities for this year was making sure that people could freely and fairly access the ballot and vote.
2: Now, has he resigned because he considers himself the winner or has he resigned because the process is going to go forward, whether he considers himself the winner or not, and therefore he will he would be in the position of, using your analogy, being an umpire in this ongoing game? Why is he resigning?
5: His statement was that he was resigning because he has declared himself the winner. But our view was that the timing of it was uh, quite conspicuous. He resigned just before this hearing was about to take place, where we were requesting a judge to order him to recuse himself from administering this election. So in our view, it was a victory and a result of this lawsuit.
2: So what else do we know, therefore, about the Georgia election going forward?
5: We know that folks are still trying to, you know, figure out what's happening. My understanding is that people are still confirming uh, provisional ballots that were cast. And there's a lot of grassroots activity and people we worked with on the ground. We represented five Georgia voters, including including Latasha Brown, who uh, runs the organization Black Votes Matter, who was working really hard to get out the vote. And so my understanding is the Stacey Abrams campaign and. Other grassroots organizations, activists uh, in Georgia are working really hard to make sure that every vote is counted before, uh, you know, a result is declared.
2: On the subject of immigration, you are yourself born in India. Your parents are from India. How has this immigration argument uh, impacted you?
5: You know, it's it's been really challenging, I think, um, emotionally, because, as you said, I was born in India. We came to the United States and we have really, I think, lived the American dream. Um, You know, my dad went back to school when we moved to the U.S. I saw my parents and my family do uh, financially better kind of with each successive year. Uh, My sister and I both went to great schools. I graduated law school. She's in med school. And it is really, uh, and I have, you know, chosen to dedicate myself and my life to public service. I went to law school with that goal in mind. That was what I was always planning on doing. And that is indeed what I have done. And so it's really painful uh, to hear rhetoric that makes it sound as though I am a burden or that I am unwelcome in a country that I chose to be a citizen of and care deeply about. Um, So on a personal level, it has been really painful and terrible. And you know, the thing is I have I have a specific immigrant story, but the promise of America, although you know we've not always lived up to it, is that you don't have to pay for your citizenship in blood, right? Like what makes America unique is that you choose to be an American or you fight for the right for your citizenship and to be considered an American as those who are descendants of slaves did. It's really uh, just awful to kind of hear people have a good immigrant versus bad immigrant narrative and talk about who is worthy and who is not worthy when the promise of America is that we are all worthy.
2: Have you experienced any difficulties in these past couple of years?
5: You know, I think I have been very privileged not to have personally experienced a ton of difficulties and insulated because I live in New York City, because I am a lawyer, I know my rights, because I have access to resources and legal counsel. What I will say is that that is certainly not true for everyone. Uh, we have heard about expanded immigration enforcement. Uh, there, We've heard about family separation. I remember when the Muslim ban uh, took place shortly after president Trump's uh, inauguration. And so, you know, the fact that I have not personally experienced challenges uh, because I am an immigrant does not at all mean uh, that that has been true for everyone. In fact, it is quite the opposite. And I think most people who are in the category of people that I'm in as immigrants are living in a perpetual state of fear. And that is just quite terrible when, you know, President Trump prior to this election was making threats about birthright citizenship and, you know, forming a a denaturalization task force to take away citizenship status from people who are naturalized citizens, that for me was quite alarming. I'm a naturalized citizen. I was naturalized when I was 11. And so there's a lot of fear in the air. And I think a lot of people feel that even if they haven't directly come into contact with one of these policies
2: so are there initiatives around that now? Is that something that people are mobilizing to um, to combat?
5: Certainly. um, After, you know, after the Muslim ban uh, was enforced, we saw immediately that day, public interest lawyers, uh, lawyers flooded to the airports, represented people. We saw that case make its way to the Supreme Court. Uh, Around family separation, we saw massive mobilizations. And we did with the airports, too. People were immediately at the airports. Around family separation, we saw people taking to the streets, and we saw lawyers arguing that case in court. And similarly, around the denaturalization task force I know that there are lawyers who are working on trying to figure out exactly what is happening and um taking measures to work against uh you know, such a task force being abused and the president abusing his executive powers. on um, the, the question of the birthright citizenship executive order, no such executive order has been issued, to my knowledge. Um, so I don't think there has been a ton of mobilization around it, although there's certainly been a lot of discussion about what a terrible and unconstitutional idea it would be.
2: Looking forward to next steps, what do you see as the important trends to watch on the good side and on the bad?
5: Yeah, I think on the good side, I can say for our organization, Protect Democracy, we have two major initiatives uh, that we are that we have recently rolled out. One is a legislative agenda, which we're calling the Roadmap for Renewal. So that is one initiative. It's a slate of legislative proposals that will help strengthen our democracy and fix it. We saw similar overhauls after uh, Nixon's administration, where we saw a real doubling down on uh, you know, making sure that the norms and institutions that we that where weaknesses were exposed were fortified for the next generation and we have that opportunity again. Then the other thing is uh, now with the House of Representatives majority flipping and Nancy Pelosi potentially retaking the speakership, uh, we are going to also see that Democrats have the ability to conduct investigations. And uh, we are also working on putting together a slate of potential investigations that we think are really important, abuses of power that have taken place uh, over the last two years that have not been properly investigated and where information has not come to light. And those will also, you know, lay the the groundwork for possible reforms. So I think those are two really big positive things to look forward to ways we can fortify our system through legislation and also investigations that can expose weaknesses that need to be fortified.
2: That was a DT Janaja. My thanks to her and fellow guests, Catherine Baxter and Sandy Oxford. For more about today's election 2018 wrap-up and links to the organizations and resources heard on the show, visit my website, janusadams.com That's J-A-N-U-S-A-D-A-M-S dot com. From the studios of WJFF Radio Catskill, I'm Janice Adams. The Janice Adams Show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, all rights reserved.